Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. This week we come to the close of, or the end of chapter 3. And next week we will move into chapter 4. We're closing out the uh, indicative section or the declarative section of the letter. And we're moving into what's known as the imperative section. Part or the command section of the letter next week. Uh, to, for people like me, it's easier to say we're moving out of the you are's into the you must's. Okay? We're moving out of who we've been declared to be in Christ into now how we're to live in light of that truth. Okay? And, and Paul does something very, very important in this transition. He prays. He prays for those who are at Ephesus. And and the question we ask is why? Why would he choose at this point to pray? And of course we know based on what's written here that number one, he's doing so because of everything that he's already said. And that's why he begins this section with the, the statement for this reason. So we know that everything that's to follow is based on everything that's come before. But secondly, when you think about it, I think another reason is when when you hear all that has been done for us in Christ, all, all that we are and all that's been done for us and all that theology, right? it automatically leads us or should, when we consider all that he's done for us, it should lead us to doxology or to worship. And so Paul has just finished talking about all of this that we have in Christ and he breaks into both prayer and praise. So he breaks into worship. But the more I read the passage over these last few weeks, the more I was struck not only by what he had said, but I was also interested very much in what he was about to say and how those things fit together. In other words, Paul knows that he is about to call the Ephesians to obedience. He's about to call them out and say, this is what we should do in light of who we are in Christ. And so he wants them to grasp as firmly as they possibly can, everything that's gone on before, because he knows that it's going to be the foundation upon on which everything else is, is done. So everything that they do is going to come out of and be fruit of who they are in the Lord Jesus. He knows that if they were going to do all that he was going to do, that they were going to have to believe in and trust and build upon everything that has come before. And so this prayer, in this prayer, he lets them know, and he lets us know, because this letter is not only for them, it's for us, that, that this isn't about some sort of simple moral overhaul. It's not simply a matter of behavioral modification. That this was and is about life transformation. It's about a renovation of the heart. It's a phrase that we're going to hear quite frequently because if you're taking notes and how often I say certain things, that's going to be something that we hear quite often. He's about to stress the fact that they were in, who they were in Christ has a profound impact on how they live. But he knew, he knew that their obedience was not something that they could just simply will into existence. It wasn't something that they could just determine to do. He also knew... He also knew that it wasn't going to be easy. As a matter of fact, I think he knows that it was going to be, and and they knew that it was going to be far more difficult than they could imagine. 
And he knew that they were going to fail more times than they wanted to. And he knew that that failure and that sin could potentially cause them to want to give up. And so Paul prays. He prays because he knows and he wants them to know that God was able to do far more than they could ask or imagine. And that it was him who was at work within them. He knew that praying for them, uh, he, he knew, he, he wants to pray so that their sins and failures don't drive them to despair, but drive them to the cross. Because it's there that they have hope. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us today. The same is absolutely true for us. So this prayer is, is, is as much for you and me. And, and unlike the prayer of Jabez, this is a prayer that I would recommend for you to pray. Not only for yourselves, but for others. And we're going to break this down into four parts. We're going to look at the posture of Paul's prayer, the petitions of his prayer, and the power and the purpose of his prayer. So if you would, let's stand in the honor of God's word. If you are willing and able, it is our custom to do so. And Ernie has already read chapter 3 as a whole. We'll look at simply our passage tonight beginning in verse 14, where we left off last week. Hear now the word of the Lord. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we would ask in these moments that we, we might be changed. Bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word. And Father, even in advance, I would pray this for us as a body, that as we walk through this passage, that, these, that this might be true of us. Those things that we look at, would, would you bring that about in us We thank you for this, your holy and errant word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We know immediately from everything that Paul has said through uh, chapter 1, verse 1, through the end of chapter 2, as well as the first 13 verses of chapter 3, that, that this is, we know immediately that all of that is more than dry orthodoxy. What I mean is that we know that this is more than just some truth that's out there that he is intellectually assented to. And we know that very simply by the fact that he says that he bows his knees. Um, immediately the Jews would have understood what he was talking about and the significance of, of what he was feeling and what he was about to say because they knew that the customary posture of prayer was to stand. And, and at, at the time when uh, people would bow their knees, they knew that it meant that there was some sort of gravity or seriousness or this earnestness and soberness that wasn't uh, a part of maybe other prayers as they were standing. There was some sort of 
urgency. So when he says he's hit his knees and bowed his knees, they know there's an urgency to what he's about to say, and what he's about to pray. And the bottom line is that there was more, uh, there, there was an intense emotion that was a part of this situation that was going on. And his bodily posture reflected that what was going on inside. Now, Paul also says, not only that he bows his knees, but he says he bows his knees before the Father. And, and then on, on his face, that's not real, that's not out of the ordinary for you or me. I mean, Jesus taught us to pray, right, to the Father. Um, and so it's something that we do. It's something that we're accustomed to. Uh, but there's, there's this word play here in the original language in the Greek and, and and Paul's description of the Father is very, very significant. So he says, I bow my knees before the Father. And then he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And there's the same root used in the word Father as well as the word family. And so there's a sense in which Paul is actually saying, I bow my, na- my knee to the Father from whom all fatherhood is named. And really, we could also change that a little bit and we could say that he's saying, I now bow my knees to the Father of fathers. And that's why it's significant. Because I think he's communicating a couple of things. One is, remember what he's just said in chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3. Now Jew and Gentile are all a part. They're one man, but they're all a part of God's family. He is their father. So he is the father of fathers in that he is the father of both Jew and Gentile. Even though they're no longer two separate peoples, they are one. And so he is the father of all. But secondly, or or two, he's bowing his knees before the ultimate father. And what I mean by that is uh, he's communicating um, that that the fatherhood of God simply isn't some metaphor... Uh, that we use to draw from our human experience that helps us understand Him more. It's actually just the opposite. It's God and His fatherhood. He is, as one commentator said, He is the fountain of fatherhood. In other words, it, it should be earthly fathers that take their cues from the heavenly father. It's not we should look at our earthly fathers and, and paint some picture of God. I'll get to that in just a minute. There are a couple points of application. One, um, we see here and throughout Scripture that the physical posture, whether in prayer or worship, matters. And it's why as we come to worship here and as you look through the bulletin, you'll see it's expressive and it's an outward expression of an inward reality. And so there's a reason that we have different postures depending upon what's going on in the service. So we will stand Uh, And sing, but we also encourage to kneel or sit during our confession of sin. And then we stand again when we hear the assurance of pardon. We stand in the honor of God's word. We raise our hands when we sing the doxology. All of those postures are important. And these, these encouragements aren't meant simply for us to go through the motions, pun intended. Right? They're meant for us to express the emotional and spiritual realities that are going on and that we're being experienced. And secondly, as I was just saying, when we come to prayer or to God in prayer, we come to Him, uh, we come to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. And as um, Ernie read earlier from earlier in chapter 3 that we covered last week, we come into God's presence, the Father's presence. We have full access because we come in Christ by the power of the Spirit. So we come in confidence. We come... Um, 
Well, we, 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 just, we, we can burst into His presence and not worry. We come into the presence of God. But, but sometimes we have to admit, or at least I have to admit, I hesitate to do that, particularly in prayer. I hesitate to come into God's presence um, because, again, what we do is we paint this picture of our Heavenly Father based upon our earthly fathers. And unfortunately, our earthly fathers, of which I am one, we have to admit, guys, we aren't perfect. We don't do everything the way that we should. And so we all need to remember that God is our Heavenly Father. Uh, we all need to remember and teach our children, or teach our children and help them remember and regularly remind them that while we try, there is a father who is far better. There is a father, and, and I want to quote Richard Koken here. He says, there is a father who is always available, always knows what's best, is always patient, always kind, is always able to provide whatever is necessary, is generous and wise, firm and fair in discipline, and at the same time quick to forgive, never breaks a promise and goes with us everywhere. He is the best father anyone could ever have. Particularly for those who have had abusive or absent fathers, but really for all of us who have had imperfect ones. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's bursting in confidence into the presence of his heavenly father on behalf of the Ephesians. And he comes with three particular petitions. It's one prayer. I think it's one prayer really for their sanctification. But it can be broken down, again, based on the language, it can be broken down into three particular petitions. Look at verse 16. He prays that according to the riches of His glory, He might grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So his first petition is the first part of that passage. In verse 14 and 15, he prays that they would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. Now the first thing we need to realize is that he's talking about something inside. It's inner. It's not external. Okay, Very, very important that we understand that. It involves affections and desires and convictions that affect who they are, who we are at our very core. Okay? And also notice that while he says, so that, in verses 14 and 15, uh, it makes us feel like that there is some sort of numerical progression to the events when it's not actually what's going on. They're really parallel statements that are describing the same thing and what he is desiring. And he's basically saying this. He's praying that Christ would dwell in their hearts by the Spirit through faith. Okay, he's praying that, that Christ would dwell in their hearts by the Spirit through faith. And we've already read back in chapter 1 and into chapter 2 that, that they're already believers. They're already in Christ and the Spirit has already sealed them. So we know he's not praying for their justification. We're not praying that... Um, and this also, by the way, is not a proof text for us asking Jesus into our hearts. Okay. What he's doing, Paul is asking that Christ, having already arrived, 
having already arrived, would now make himself a home within them by the Spirit. And as I said a minute ago, he's praying for their sanctification. He's asking that Christ would become the center of their affections, the center of their desires, the center of their convictions and actions. And that was only going to happen by the power of the Spirit. They weren't going to be able to, again, to do that on their own. They weren't going to be able to muster up enough determination and willpower. Uh, remember what Paul said to the Galatians in chapter 3. He said that they would be, the Galatians, and, and we could say everyone else, but the Galatians in particular would be foolish to think that they would finish or continue and complete by the flesh what had been begun by the Spirit. And so Paul is basically reiterating that same thing. He's saying to them that... The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that's necessary to make this happen. What, what I'm praying for you is necessary by the Spirit. And, and I've thought about this, and, and, and here's the best way that I, that I can illustrate this. We have recently opened an Airbnb. And this last weekend, we had a, a lady come from Oklahoma. And uh, she came in on a Friday. I met her, and apparently she stayed all weekend because we never saw her or heard her. Um, but I went down there on Saturday when she was gone, and I noticed not a thing had been moved out of place, but there was one bag and one piece of Tupperware sitting on the table. So I had an idea, okay, she's still here, that's good. And she wasn't down there, so she was okay. I was assuming she was okay. Uh, the next thing I know, she's emailing and saying, had a great time. Uh, nothing moved, but she was there. And that was very different from our first guests who were there for a month. They were relocating from Joplin, and they brought boxes and a refrigerator and a hot plate, and they, had, they stuck clothes in the cabinets. They put things in the drawers. They had boxes stacked up. When I went down there to go to the storage room, the room, uh, they, they were clean and tidy. Don't get me wrong, but, but things, the room did not look like the room that, that we had set up. They had made themselves at home, but it was still only temporary. We have to take it a step farther to understand what Paul's talking about here. He's not praying for Christ to make a short-term stay by making himself at home in our hearts. He's praying, he's praying that Christ would make himself a home in our hearts permanently. And that's, we have to remember the end of chapter 2. What does he say? He said he's, we've been, we're being made or built into a dwelling place for God. Now he's talking corporately. We, we said that. We know that. We're talking about us together are being, are being built into a dwelling place of God. But, but remember, we're all each individual stones in that dwelling place. And so each of us, he's saying here that Christ, he's praying that Christ would dwell in each of our hearts and that he would find a, and make a dwelling place within us so that as then we're fit together as a body, we create. So we're all temples of the Holy Spirit being made into a temple of God. But because we're sinners, that's going to take more than putting clothes in a, you know, in a closet or bringing in an extra refrigerator or... Um, a needed hot plate, right? a couple of appliances. What he's talking about is a complete, what I said earlier, kiddos, a renovation of the heart. It, it's kind of like what the Adams like to do with every house that they move into. 
Okay? Um, and if you've helped them, you understand what I mean. Um, popcorn ceilings scraped. Um, the wallpaper scraped off. Carpet ripped up and thrown out and the glue chiseled off the concrete floors. And I mean, you've, you've been there with him, right? He, he came in today. Hey, I just finished Jane's room. It's a great illustration of what we're talking about. You know, new wiring, um, built-in shelving. Uh, but the same is true for us spiritually. Okay, For Christ to make a home, a dwelling within our hearts, renovation needs to take place. Idols need to be torn down. Right? Selfishness needs to be scraped off. Pride needs to be chiseled away. Fear and hopelessness need to be yanked up and thrown out the window. And in its place, we need love for God and neighbor. And we need peace and, and love and humility and joy and hope and security and contentment, just to name a few. Our hearts need to be renovated. And, and again, that's internal. And Paul is saying, he's praying for this because they can't do this on their own. It's only going to be done by faith. Trusting in what the Lord has promised to do. Trusting and resting in Christ by the Holy Spirit to do the work that needs to be done. And brothers and sisters, it's, the same is true for us. And the first step in that project, the first step is to understand that we in fact need to be renovated. And that we're helpless to do what needs to be done. And that renovation of our hearts is for a permanent stay. A long time. So it's a long time project. And it's never easy. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's simply a new coat of paint. Sometimes the wallpaper does have to come down. And sometimes the drywall has to be sanded. Sometimes the, the, the drywall has to come down completely, or, or old 70s paneling, right? It has to come down. Or sometimes you find that those two-by-fours are completely rotted. And it takes a little more time, and a little more effort, and a little more pain. And, but that's why Paul here, he says, it's, that brings us back to that posture. Why does he pray to the Father? Because the Father has said, he, he is... He's a father, as we read from Mr. Koken, he's a father that's gentle. He will do things gradually and lovingly. And that leads us to the second petition. Again, all, one prayer for sanctification, but the second petition, he says, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So basically he says, since, since you are rooted and grounded in love, and what he means by that is, he says, since God's love for you was the motivator for your election and for, um, uh, for you being declared holy and blameless and for your uh, redemption and for your forgiveness and, and for your adoption, since that, that love was behind all that, and because Christ's work was the ultimate expression of that love for you, and, and because it's that love that's going to be the, the ground from which all of this fruit that I'm about to share, all of that, the, the love is the ground from which all that fruit is going to spring forth. 
and flourish. He says, I pray that you would have the strength and the ability not only to apprehend, that word means apprehend, not only to apprehend the truth of, of his love, but to experience it more fully. And notice how that happens. He says that he desires that to happen with all the saints because that's, that's where all that takes place. Uh, it's something that's corporate in nature. Though it's happening individually within us, it is something that happens together. It's in the context of the fellowship of God's people where that happens. Uh, it's, it's within the family of God that that love that he's talking about, it's, it's where we learn about that love, where we better understand that love, and where we experience that love. And it provides all the more reason for the importance of us gathering as a body and not to forsake the gathering together. Because it's, it's the place in which this prayer, as we prayed, it's, it's, it's the means through which God answers that prayer. Now, why would he pray for the strength to comprehend and know the love of Christ? Well, and why would he need the Spirit's help? Well... He answers that too because he says, you know, Christ's love is so vast. And, and we, we who say we love dogs and love chocolate really don't understand by ourselves what it means for Christ to love us. We misuse the word. We use it flippantly. And, and we've lost some of that meaning. What, what does that mean? So he, he prays. I pray that you would understand the breadth. And, and the breadth means how wide or how accepting the love of Christ is. Right? It's, it's wider than the Pacific Ocean that's 12,300 miles wide. Right? For you kiddos. The, the love of Christ is, is wider than that. And what he means is that no one, no matter who they are or what they've done, is outside of God's grasp. And he says, I, I also pray that you would know the length. The length of, uh, uh, or how lasting the love of Christ is. And kiddos, that's, his love is longer than the highway that stretches from Oregon to Massachusetts that's 3,300 miles long. The love of Christ far exceeds that. And, and what does that mean? It means that from, he's loved us from eternity past and is going to love us to eternity future. Never going to stop. He also says, I pray that you would know the height or how exalting the love of Christ is. Right? Kiddos, hey, the love of Christ is higher than Mount Everest. Right? Mount Everest is 6.8 miles or 5.5 miles high. Pales into comparison. Pales in comparison to the love of Christ. And what does he say? We know he's loved us and he has seated us in heavenly places with Christ. So we're there. That's how much he loves us. He also, he wraps up and he says, I pray that you know the depth or how sacrificial his love is. You know, there's, there's this trench in the Northeast Pacific Ocean, kids, um, that, that is so deep that Mount Everest that I just told you about will go in, can go, would fit into that trench and there's still um, uh, 1.2 miles of water, right? That trench is 36,000 feet deep. Pales, into comp- pales in comparison to how deep the love of Christ is for you. Doesn't even come close. We sing, how deep 
the Father's love for us. We love it when Bonnie sings it, right? How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make what? A wretch His treasure. That's how, that's how deep the Father's love is. And then He says, Really? I'm not doing justice. Even, in, even His attempt fails to express His love because His love is beyond description. It's beyond what we can understand. And, and again, children, um, you've, you, in words that you can understand and probably remember, you know, He loves you more than to the moon and back. More than that. And that's why He prays that we would understand. That's why He prays that. Now the question, at least to another question, we say, well, why would he follow up a petition for Christ to dwell in their hearts by faith with a, uh, and to make himself a home in their hearts and follow that up with a petition that they would understand the love of God? And, and I, as I mentioned when we began, he's about to move into this, um, the commands and the you musts. And, and he knows it's going to be difficult. And he doesn't, And he does it because he doesn't, or he knows that their current sins and failures, or he doesn't want their current sins and failures or their future sins and failures to lead them to despair, but to lead them to the cross. And God wants the same for us. And so here's here's what I mean. Paul prayed that Christ would, that he would dwell in their hearts by the Spirit through faith. And as we said, he's going to make a dwelling place, and that means renovation of the heart. And that involves, because of our sin, that renovation involves affections and desires. And Paul knows that. He knows that for the Ephesians and you and I and people in general, we choose what we love. We do what we love. At any point, we choose based on the strongest inclination at the time, and those strong inclinations are basically those things that we love at the moment. We do and act based on what we love at the most at that particular time. So hang on here, but what that means is when we sin, at that moment we are loving something else more than we love God at that moment. And we want to push back on that, and I get that. That's hard to hear. As one author said this week, he said, This is not a truth we want to face or are accustomed to facing on these terms. On those occasions that we do face our sin, we most often say to ourselves, I was weak, or I messed up, or I failed my Savior. But even in these expressions of guilt, there is still the assumption that we love Jesus and we just messed up. But the truth is, when we sin, love for sin competes and supersedes our love for Christ. Another way that that could be said is we fail to love God with all of our heart, with all our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. The law confronts us. It convicts us. And that same author said, this understanding can be completely devastating to us as Christians. Oh no, we cry, if such sin is present in my life, then I don't love God enough. If I love God enough, then this sin would not overpower me. 
despite all my past promises and commitments, I must not love God enough. And if we left it there, if that was the final word, despair is the logical and expected place to land. It is. We don't love God enough. But Paul does, doesn't do, uh, Paul doesn't do what many pastors do today. He doesn't encourage them to try harder or make more promises. He doesn't encourage them to recommit their lives to Christ, hoping that this time it'll take and they'll truly love him this time. He doesn't give them five things to do to renovate their own hearts. And he doesn't give them three things to assure them that if they do that, that God will make himself a home in their heart. He doesn't do it. Paul says, he does does something completely different because he knows that while the law confronts and convicts, it does not have the power to bring about the change that is needed to renovate the heart. And so he prays. He prays and he asks them, he asks God to give them the strength to understand and to fully comprehend, to plumb the depths and the vastness of the love of Christ. Why? So in those moments, in that moment of brokenness, when they come to realize that they haven't loved God enough, at that moment that they will know and comprehend that He loves them enough. And brothers and sisters, that that prayer is for us today as well. The prayer is for us in the moments, in our brokenness, when we realize we don't love God enough, what do we remember? What do we pray? We we, want to know and comprehend that God loves us enough. In those moments, we want to know that Christ loves us more than we love Him. Make this personal... Christ loves you, and His love for you surpasses any scenario you might create. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've left undone, no matter if something has been done to you. Christ outloves any and all of our sin, and any and all of the circumstances we might experience as a result of someone else's sin. His love for you, His love for me is beyond measure. He loves us even when our love for Him is waning. That's what Paul wants us to understand. Because he knows that as we grow in that comprehension of how much we're loved by Christ, that in turn, our our affections and our desires for Him are going to change. And we know that because that's, well, listen to this this quote by that same author, the last one. He says, confidence in the love of a heavenly father for humbled creatures encourages return, it stimulates repentance, and it increases the love for the father. This or that is the power of the gospel. And it's the same thing Jesus said when he told the parable of the prodigal son. It was the love of the Father for the Son that brought the Son home. 
It was the love of the Father that caused the love of the Son to increase to the point that He wanted to be home and eliminated the fear that the Son would have had of returning, right? First John says, perfect love casts out fear. And it's followed right up with, we love because He first loved us. That's why. He prays that they would understand the love of Christ. And that leads to the final petition very quickly. He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And it's really a perfect wrap-up. <laughs> Surprise, right? It's a perfect wrap-up because Paul prays that as they know and, and comprehend more fully the love of Christ and more and more Christ makes himself at home or a home in their hearts that that. And that renovation continues that ultimately, ultimately, Christ will occupy every room, every space, every square inch. And so that, so that there's no room left. Nothing is left unoccupied. I think we could use Paul's words to the Colossians. Right? Paul's praying that Christ would be more than just present He's praying that Christ would be more than just prominent. He's praying that Christ would be preeminent. That's the goal of our sanctification. That's what He desires for us. And that leads, finally, these last two, I'm going to put these together. We, we have to move on. And that leads to this. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far abundantly all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now his conclusion is doxological, it's theological, but it's, it's really an encouragement to wrap up this prayer. First, he says that through, through it, he's encouraging them to, to go to God as their heavenly father with any and all petitions because the limitless and unending love and power of God cannot and will not supersede or will not be superseded by their requests or anything they might request. Second, he says he's encouraging them through it. He's encouraging them to always look to Christ because the limitless and unending love and power of God cannot and will not be superseded by their sin. It's not going to happen. And then finally, he's encouraging them to give God glory through the church and in the church and in Christ because the limitless and unending love and power of God cannot and will not be superseded by their or anyone else's will. Not going to happen. And, and we need to be encouraged by those same words. And that, that, that is why I say this is a prayer. We should pray for ourselves and pray for one another and pray for our church. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you.